This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Julie Powell, whose blog posts about attempting every recipe in Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, were collected into a best-selling book, Julie and Julia, which then became a hit movie starring Meryl Streep and Amy Adams, died of cardiac arrest on October 26, 2022, at the age of 49. I interviewed Julie Powell on December 16, 2009, while she was on tour for her second book, Cleaving, a story of marriage, meat, and obsession. In the interview, we discussed her career as well as the film, which had been released the previous August. Cleaving is the story of your six months as an apprentice butcher, and afterward you took a tour of different countries. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you were going through an affair and difficulties in your marriage, Mm -hmm. which you tell about, and you tell about honestly. So let me start there. When you were writing the book, or as you were thinking of the concept of the book, was the fact that you come across as kind of a bad guy? I mean, <laughs> how much was that weighing on you? Of course, I don't think of myself as a bad guy, but I, you know, I do understand that that's the way I sort of come off. And it was so important to me to write a book that was as honest as I could be about the difficulties that we were going through, that I was going through, that I put myself into. So to write a book that justified that or or made it okay was not something I was interested in. I wanted the blood and guts version. And, you know, I've been oversharing professionally for seven years now. So uh, I'm sort of used to the potholes one runs into when one is doing that. So I I was somewhat prepared to have people, you know, maybe not like me so much. For me, the writing of the book was part of processing the experience. It was what helped me to understand the experience. And then to put it out there, obviously, is a difficult decision to make. Uh, Certainly, you know, it's a decision I discussed with my husband a great deal before it was printed and that I would never have published it without his blessing. But there is something about communicating this difficult experience. You know, the writing of it was for me. The putting it out there, I hope, is for other people who have been in similar circumstances and maybe feel isolated. I think especially women who have been in situations where there's adultery and feel like that's not something they can talk about and that, you know, they're hideous people who have to hide forever. And that kind of pain is more common than people think. They don't have to be so completely alone. And, you know, maybe people will understand. The the problem I see is not just about you, because mm-hmm. in a sense, you know, we can, we can always throw ourselves to Certainly. the wolves. But when we're talking about two other people, sure. in this case, the character of D, or I mm-hmm. guess his real name is Damon. Uh, is that his real name, by no. the way? No. No. <laughs> okay. we, we changed that. No, absolutely. I think that my concern has always been way more with how the other people that I depict how I treat them rather than me. I can I can throw my tear, tear myself open and eviscerate myself. It's my story. But to tell their stories from my perspective, that's a great responsibility and you have to be careful. And as I mentioned before, you know, I talked with Eric a good deal about it and, you know, told him what was going to be in the book. And that was difficult uh, and something that we really had to talk to. But he is this very generous, courageous guy who understood. And in return for that generosity, I have to 
take care of him as best I can, given the situation. Well, he comes across probably more saint-like than he actually was in real life. He's fairly saintly, but <laughs> but I, I guess I probably do credit him with, well, he is. He's an extraordinarily big-hearted man. But in this particular situation, when I did, you know, I treated him badly. I made terrible choices for myself. I treated myself badly. And he lived through that with remarkable grace, considering. And as for Dee, he actually also gave legal consent and read the book. Well, he was also under a pseudonym and hidden. I tried to make him as anonymous as possible. Uh, Whether or not he wants to be anonymous, I do not know, but... Well, you'll find out. I will. Let's go back a little to uh, the story of Julie and Julia. Mm-hmm. I did not read the book. I saw the movie. Is that pretty much the way it happened? The movie is not the book. The The movie is definitely a Nora Ephronized version, uh, much sweeter. She has her own agenda of what she's trying to get across. But the basic events are more or less intact. That's what I wanted. Yeah, that's, yeah, what that's wanted. pretty yeah. much, it was pretty much the year. Well, at the end of that, you get your book contract and uh, you go and write the book. At that point, you talk in talking about cleaving your new book. Mm -hmm. You talk about becoming obsessed with butchery. But let's go back because at the end of this, you've got a first book. And obviously, as with any writer, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a second book. Sure. Okay. So at what point did you realize that your joy of butchery Mm -hmm. or, or your obsession with it was going to become the second book. And was it really an obsession before uh-huh. you said, this is the book? I'd been pretty obsessed and fascinated by butchers for years and years and years, uh, ever since I moved to New York and sort of discovered my first traditional butcher shop. After Julie and Julia, when I'd written that, and I had become a writer, and I was working, you know, making a living as a writer, that gave me, I mean, honestly, the privilege to revisit that fascination. The idea of the book came as I started talking to butchers and I realized that this is something I really wanted to do. And I said, and this would be great to write about because it's such a fascinating craft. Did you get any kind of contract at that point? Little Brown brought me on for the second book shortly after I'd begun actually butchering being an apprentice. The book contract gave me the leeway to do the training as extensively as I did. I sure hope that I would have carried on with it regardless because once I get really started in the butchering, that sort of took over. It's, it's just, I became so, I fell so in love with it. The opening of the book, along with telling the story of your affair and your relationship mm-hmm. with Eric, uh, is about your search to be an apprentice. Mm-hmm. And you finally stumble on Fleischer's mm-hmm. in Kingston, New York. And I went to their website and they now offer <laughs> classes in butchery. They do. They do. I got in at the right time. I sometimes think that's really my actual only talent is stumbling into things. You know, I stumbled into blogging in 2002, not knowing what I was doing. I stumbled into this butcher shop before it became the big new thing. Nowadays, they're charging, I think, $10,000 for a six-week course. I just walked in there. I don't want to get too far afield into the area of animal rights or, sure. or vegetarianism, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. In, on your website, you discuss both Michael Pollan and Jonathan Safran Farr. It's been really interesting. Uh, Jonathan Safran He's published by Little Brown as well. I've never met him, but I really do think, you know, having read the book, and we actually have way more in common than not because we're both concerned with the same thing, which is knowing where our food comes from, knowing how it gets from the pasture to the table, and and yet we're concerned with the transparency of that process, which that's what Josh and Jessica dedicated themselves to when they opened the shop. Local small farmers, humanely raised animals, humanely slaughtered animals. 
Josh was a vegan for 17 years, including six months after he opened Fleischer's. So they're very committed to contributing to the revolution of animal husbandry and um, trying to change the way Americans raise and eat meat. Were you particularly aware of that entire aspect of food prior to going to Fleischer's? You know, I was. I think everyone was becoming more concerned at that point. You know, Omnivore's Dilemma had come out fairly recently which really brought the discussion into the mainstream. I was definitely intellectually aware of it, but it was really very much just in my head and something that I could turn off, switch on and off at will, uh, depending on if I really wanted a burger. And working with the meat and working with Josh and Jessica and really seeing that process has made it impossible for me to ignore. I've become much more careful about where I get my meat from because it's become really important to me to have the good stuff. Julie Powell... In terms of that, you spent six months essentially eating their meat and getting away from the store-bought meat. From a flavor perspective, Mm -hmm. what's the difference? Is the difference that stark? The difference is pretty stark. It depends on what cut and what animal you're talking about. Their beef is all either entirely grass-fed in the summer or grass-fed, grain-finished. It has an extraordinarily different taste. It tastes very much well, like beef you would get in Argentina or Brazil, which, of course, is all grass-raised. And it's a it's a darker flavor. It's leaner meat. It doesn't have that intense fat marbling. Well, it, if it's really great, it can still, but it, it is definitely a leaner thing and a darker taste uh, that takes some getting used to. I've talked to lots of people who say, I know I prefer feedlot beef because that's what they're used to. That's what they were raised with. Uh, I now strongly prefer uh, their meat. And then if you, you're talking about pork, Josh and Jessica sell Berkshire pork. So we're literally talking about a different breed, a different animal. And it's much fattier, uh, which is great because mainstream pork has been leaned down to, to nothing. So it has much, much more flavor. It's dramatically different. Eric is passionate about the pork chops. The price of the meat is about like 20, 25% higher. So I'm just curious, for a lot of us, it's kind of hard to afford that. And yet at the same time, we don't want to feed into the mass market butchery. Absolutely. It's it's a conundrum. There's no question about it. I feel that I am in a very privileged position in that I have access to and the money to buy the good stuff and thereby put my money where, where my mouth is and try to contribute to ethical husbandry methods. Not everyone has that privilege. One thing I do do now is I eat much less meat than I used to. If you talk to Josh and Jessica or Tom Milan, who's another rock star butcher in, in Brooklyn, and they will routinely, if you're in their shop, tell patrons, you don't need that much meat. Buy less. Don't eat it as much. They consider that meat should be almost a garnish rather than you know the center of a meal. And I think that that's one thing. The more we can sort of change our approach to meat and how we eat it is great. But it's a huge, huge problem. How does your average guy avoid eating very unhealthy meat and buying into a system that's just, it's enormous. It's enormous. And it's, it's a conundrum. And I think all we can do is those of us who can set the right example and hope that there's some kind of trickle down and vote as much as we can for the right people and the right ideas. In your book, you talk about butchering uh, lamb, a lot of pork, beef. I think there's a turkey in there, uh, deboning a turkey. There's very little about chicken. My impression is that it's more difficult to get a reliable source for ethically raised poultry than anything else. And and if you read Jonathan Seffron Flora's book, the chicken's the worst. It's awful. So badly run, big poultry. So I didn't actually do a lot of work with poultry. The other thing, too, is that there's not much to butchering a chicken. (laughs) Anybody can really manage a chicken. So it doesn't take a lot of practice. 
beef, you did quite a bit. You did some lamb and mm-hmm. quite a bit of pork. You talk about one cut of meat that everyone loves, but you don't like because it's boring. It's like the Merlot of meat. What's that? (laughs) The tenderloin. The tenderloin, yes. I have your butcher's contempt for tenderloin. Butchers are really hilarious about what cuts of meat they like. They they tend to take pride in liking the stuff nobody else will eat or knows about, liking the cheap cut, whereas the tenderloin is ripping off customers with the tenderloin. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll charge $25 a pound for this crappy meat. Well, let's talk about these these great cheap cuts mm-hmm. because, you know, we can't afford the expensive meat and we don't want to go and buy it at the local supermarket. What are these cheap cuts that are so good, like for beef? For beef? Well, I, I love all of the sort of diaphragm muscles. So, so skirt steak, hanger steak no longer is because everyone's figured it out that it's so good, but skirt steak's still pretty cheap. Flank steak has great flavor it's, and you have to treat it carefully because it is kind of tough. All those, those sort of belly cuts I love. The neck meat is fantastic for stews. and It's got a good fat to meat ratio. Short ribs. I love short ribs. I love them, love them, love them, love them. And oxtail. That's my other favorite. Well, you talk about oxtail in the book. Now, what about pork? <laughs> you can do great things with the shank. You can use pork shank, like a cross-cut shank, the way you do asabuco or something like that. The trotters make, you know, you can cook those. You can brine them. You can either eat them whole or you can make a stock out of them. So all those like the little bits and pieces are really good. Well, when you were in Argentina, they used a a portion of of beef that no one else does. And Mm -hmm. could you get that here? You'd have to talk to someone like a butcher that gets their meat whole. If I ask Josh, this is the matambre is what they call it. And and it's this sort of section on the outside of the flank. They butcher their animals entirely differently. I'd have to probably talk to Josh before he had gotten the animals from the slaughterhouse and tell them, don't do it this way, do it this way, because it's the way they break down a steer at the slaughterhouse is very particular and breaks them down into eighths. And that would cut through the center of the matambre, so you'd have to make them do it at the slaughterhouse. So it's tricky. This is a very tough piece of meat, but it's mm-hmm. somehow very flavorful. It's fatty and chewy, so you have to kind of cook it in some pretty particular ways. Argentinians are funny because they... They would way prefer their meat to be kind of chewy and tough to take, and but but really strongly tasting. The tendency in the U.S. tends to be the opposite. Well, when you first went up to Fleischer's, did they kind of give you weird looks? Well, a little, but not nearly as many weird looks as I got from every other butcher that I approached. Um, you know, the first butchers I approached were real, the real old school guys. You know, been there, for, you know, working on it for decades and decades, and. Josh and Jessica are amazing people in there, but they are part of this new sort of generation of hipster butchers who find the, the work fascinating and sort of awesome and cool. Whereas, you know, your average old school guy in New York City is like, I'm a butcher. Eh, I've, been, I've been a butcher since I was 13. What do you want? You know, and those people are sanely enough not so interested in bringing some clueless chick behind the counter to get, you know, cut her fingers off in their shop. Josh and Jessica are not that sane. And so so they said yes. And, you know, yeah, there's a little bit of, because it is still, for one thing, it is still a male-dominated culture. Uh, I was pretty much the only woman when I was there who ever worked the table, certainly with any amount of regularity. But Josh is, he's crazy enough himself to understand other people's crazy ideas. Well, they knew that it would also probably be a book, right? Josh didn't know who the hell I was at all. Jessica did. But he was just like, ah, okay, sure. Who are you? Come on in. He, he's just, that's the way he is. He's and very... so you, within a short time, you're just picking up this giant, these giant chunks of meat, watching mm-hmm. them cut it and carve it like artists almost. 
yeah. until you could do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't learn butchery out of a book. You, this, it's absolutely something you have to just jump into and learn with your hands. Well, when I was reading the book, Julie Powell, I noticed this constant reference to the human body in terms of the body parts. And there was a certain point where I'm going, oh, my God, it's beginning to feel like cannibalism. Maybe I should be a vegetarian. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm sorry. Well, you know, it, 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 it's true because, you know, when I look at a piece of meat, on the table, but you know, when I was trying to learn it, I kept having to go back to my own body to understand what I was looking at, uh, because steers, pigs, lambs, us, chickens—we're all built basically the same. So you know, once you know how to break down one, you see the logic of it. And referring back to my own body kind of made it sink in a little bit more. And I think it's an easy way to explain to other people as well. Well, when you were doing your uh, recipes with Julia Child, I, I guess that must have, since she was going for different cuts of meat than mm-hmm. we're necessarily used to, you were kind of looking at meat from a somewhat different angle mm-hmm. after all of that, right? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I, I think one of the great things about immersing yourself in mastering uh, is that you do start thinking about all kinds of food differently and looking at it more carefully. And you start hearing how it's supposed to sound and smelling how it's supposed to smell and seeing what it's supposed to, you know what it's supposed to feel like on your fingers you know i certainly had this sort of intimacy with meat that i hadn't had before because i did have to and you're right you have the cuts that julia uses are not necessarily the cuts that are in your grocery store now so i was having to go to butcher shops and having to figure out you know what i needed to get and how i was going to get that i was primed <laughs> by the time it came to time for me to butcher what was the most startling or um shocking thing that you learned in the butcher shop? I think the single most provocative thing to me about butchering is how delicate it is. I came into it with the same stereotypes that everybody comes to butchery with. It's okay. It's about cleavers. It's about hacking. It's about brute force. And what I had not realized is is that 90% of butchering is terribly delicate and light. And and it's all because of seams, what butchers call seams, which are these layers of connective tissue that connect, both connect and separate muscles from each other. And it's this clear, sticky material that peels apart. You know, you really just barely have to use your knife at all. And it it's a roadmap. And it shows you how the meat really, it feels like, is supposed to come apart. It, there's this great logic to it. And a sort of, it's sort of moving to me in a way that, that, that there's this delicacy to it and a way that makes sense and that you can follow. And it's very, it's a very meditative art. And that to me was, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting to be throwing myself into hard physical labor. And that was going to be my distraction. But instead, I found that it was a a much more sort of zen endeavor. What was the most fun? Which kind of animal? Sort of depends on my mood. Beef is the most uh, detailed. You have to do more to beef. There's more to break down, uh, which if you're in a mood for a challenge is great fun. If you're exhausted, you're like, oh, can't we just do the pigs now? Pigs are easy. My favorite thing to do to practice because it feels great and challenging without making me so exhausted I want to fall over is just seeing how fast I can break down a side of pork. You know, there, it's like six moves. It's very, very quick and fast. I mean, if you watch someone like Josh do it, he can do it in 45 seconds. And um, I can't do it in 45 <laughs> seconds. But there's something very satisfying of just knowing I'm going to cut here, I'm going to cut here, I'm going to cut here, and that's done, done. Uh, I love that. Original title of the book was The Dying Art. Mm-hmm. Why did you change it, or was that your publisher? That was my publisher. I'm not sure why they got to be in their bonnet about The Dying Art. You know, I was so clear on it. The title came almost before the book. It was The Dying Art, Story of Marriage and Meat. This is perfect. And I knew it was perfect, and I pitched it to them as such. They accepted it, and then 
once the book went into marketing, all of a sudden they're like, eh. For whatever reason, they decided the dying art was not the right thing. And I was incensed at first because I was so devoted to this title. And we went back and forth and they suggested some just dreadful titles. I mean, just, you would not believe. Joint was one of them. Carving and craving. Oh, God. And I finally said, no, I need I need the word cleave in there in some form or other. And, and we settled on cleaving. I'm actually really glad. Now. First of all, I'm very pleased with cleaving as a title. But I also think it's really interesting the dying art, it's no longer really apropos, I think, for a couple of reasons. When I proposed the book, I was in a much darker place. And the perceived connection I saw between butcher shops and marriage was that they were both, you know, falling off the face of the earth and impossible to maintain. And I'm not there anymore. You know, I don't think of either marriage or butchers as dying arts. Specifically, butchering is experiencing this extraordinary resurgence. So it's not dying at all. It's, it's blossoming. So cleaving wound up being the better title. When I was over in France, mm-hmm. okay, I would get these sausages mm-hmm. and we'd cut them up and eat them with a baguette and they mm-hmm. were totally delicious. Mm-hmm. There was nothing even remotely like those sausages in America. And okay. I'm just curious why. I'm not an expert, but the laws are quite strict uh, in terms of curing and charcuterie and difficult to get around. I, You know, when I was at Fleischer's, they don't I can say this now because they don't do it anymore. They had a completely illegal salami closet in the back that would have gotten themselves, the FDA would have really slammed down on them because it was highly illegal. And I couldn't tell you the specifics, but the food rules are that that kind of curing has to happen in very, 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 very controlled ways. It usually has to have nitrates and all sorts of kind of chemical preservative stuff. And that's why I think it's if France and other countries in Europe they just don't have the same mindset in terms of what can go in there and what doesn't have to go in there. And so I think that's probably why. So we're never going to get anything remotely like that in this and you, country. You ship, you know, you smuggle it in. <laughs> <laughs> Make it yourself. Way. Make it yourself. Yeah, yeah, that would be the only way. But those are very complicated ways to make it. Well, you can. It can be done. It can be done. It's. It, yeah. It's. A, it's an endeavor. But you can do it at home. What is the relationship of Buffy the Vampire Slayer to <laughs> cleaving? <laughs> It's a running theme. <laughs> yeah, pe- people, not everyone is so thrilled with my Buffy obsession, but I can't help it. But I'm I'm a devoted Joss Whedon fan. I'm actually, one of the best things that came out of Cleaving, I sent him a copy of Cleaving, and now we're like friends, <laughs> and I'm so excited. But I think the reason that, that this it kept coming up is that Buffy is a character who, she's very strong, and yet she doesn't know who she is, and she has a struggle for self-understanding. And so I relate. I relate. <laughs> Julie Powell, Julia and Julia became a film. How did that happen? Did they approach you? What was going on? The way it started was that a a fellow named Eric Steele, who's an independent producer uh, and actually a friend of my editor, Judy Klein, towards the end of the blog, he started following it. So he knew about what was going on and and he knew that that Judy had gotten the rights for the book. Uh, And so he approached me fairly early on to buy the rights to make a movie. And I was thinking... Oh, a little independent film. Uh, you know, he does these wonderful, quirky little projects. He did The Bridge, the documentary about the Golden Gate Bridge. And he, you know, fascinating guy. And so I was just thinking it was going to be maybe someday some cute little film. And, and then he started shopping it around, looking for money, and brought it to Sony. And they said this would be a great thing for Nora Ephron to do. And shockingly, she agreed. 
And it became a whole other thing at that point. You know, once Nora Ephron's on board, it, it you know, the train has left the station. Did you have anything to do with it? Oh, uh, very little. I did, you know, I had a consultant job on it, uh, which meant that I had lunch with Nora Ephron three or four times. Uh, and she, you know, asked me a lot of very perspicacious and probing questions. She's this rather terrifying woman. And uh, and, and then she went and she wrote the script and it became a, a Nora Ephron film. Did you ever get a chance to meet Meryl Streep? I did. I did. <laughs> I'm so in love with her. I can't, I just can't contain myself. I actually, she's the only one of the four principals that I met on set. I didn't meet any of the, uh, Stanley or Chris or Amy until after the film had been completed. But I did get to go on set while uh, Meryl was filming a Julia scene. So the first time I see her, she's in her Julia regalia, five inch heels and sort of half into the voice. And the first thing she says to me when she comes off, you're so tall. <laughs> and she's extraordinary. She's extraordinary. The apartment that they lived in, uh, is that similar to your apartment? Yes and no. It's 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 certainly cuter than our apartment was. Uh, our apartment was ser- way more grotty than that. But uh, Mark Ricker, who did the production design, I think did an extraordinary job. He actually did get into our old apartment. We'd moved out by that point, but he got in there. And the layout of the apartment is quite similar. The kitchen's actually smaller than our kitchen was. You know, when I wrote the blog, the subtitle of the blog was, it was the Julie Julia Project, 365 Days, 524 Recipes, One Crappy Outer Borough Kitchen. But they didn't want me to, to use crappy in the book title or outer borough, presumably. So they t- changed it to tiny apartment. And I always sort of objected to that because it's, it wasn't tiny. It was just awful is all. <laughs> the performance by Amy Adams, when you saw that, did it resonate at all with you? Yeah, definitely. I, uh, the Julie Powell of the movie is is not me. And Amy is clearly, you know, she's a wonderfully gifted actress. She's very sweet. She's very sweet. She's, this is, you know... She's a princess. But, she, you know, she, I think she got the sort of the deeply felt meaning that she was getting out of the project that, that, was, that was so key. The one thing that I, I sort of dis- distinguish between Julie Powell, me, or Julie Powell, the book, versus the movie is that the Julie Powell of the movie is not so much a funny person as a person to whom funny things happen. The, the movie is not really so much about her developing herself as a writer, uh, which is what the year meant to me really at the end of the day was developing my tone as a writer and and finding that I could entertain people and make people laugh. I tell this story all the time, but one of the great, my great memories of that year was when I was saying to my mom, gosh, all these people are enjoying this. I'd never realized I was funny before. And my mom goes, yeah, me neither. The movie came out long after you finished writing Cleaving. Uh, when you were working on Cleaving, I guess, you were beginning to hear a little bit about about the film. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Uh, what made you decide to make the second half of Cleaving uh, this trip? And was it truly one trip? It was actually two trips. I went to Argentina, and then I came back, and then I went out again. It was not necessarily in my ball game at the beginning that I was going to travel, and that was going to be part of the book. But what I discovered at the end of my apprenticeship at Fleischer's was that it had been a sort of womb-like environment for me to be nurtured for those six months, but then I had to get out in the world. And I think the reason that I decided I needed to travel, certainly I wanted to see different meet right. cultures and you know meet people who were sort of part of this butchery brethren, which really is sort of an international commonality. But one of the things that happens when you've been with the same man since you're 18 years old is that you don't, I mean, I, I'd never been to a foreign country by myself. And not only did I want to, to see, can I handle myself? Can I 
navigate the world by myself, but I also just wanted to experience a place that I wasn't seeing through the lens of Eric's experience and Eric's perspective. I needed to see something on my own, which, I mean, and that doesn't just go for countries or people. That goes for life experience. It's very difficult when you grow up together to disentangle your two perspectives, and that was something I felt like I needed to do. Well, two places that are mentioned in the book, but you don't go into. One is Dubai. Did you actually mm-hmm. spend time there? No, I stopped over. I, it, okay. it was a fl- I, I spent the night there at the hotel, or not at the airport, rather, and I had a falafel. And that was it. Okay. And what about Japan? Japan was lovely, but it didn't wind up working out very well in terms of the meat stuff, so I didn't write about it. It was very expensive, uh, obviously, and expensive to get a guide. And I don't speak anything like speak Japanese. And it's kind of really difficult to navigate Japan when you don't speak the language. Uh, I mean, more so than other countries. I could get by in Argentina or Tanzania or Ukraine even. But I just needed rest. I needed and it. And it was wonderful. And it was what I needed. And it was this great reentry um, back into New York and back into my life. Uh, but I spent four days sleeping in a... Julie Powell... We have not at all discussed the other side of the book, which is mm-hmm. the, the relationship side. And now that you're done with it, with the book, a lot of people use, as you've said, they use these books almost as a therapy when you're mm-hmm. doing the writing, which mm-hmm. means that at the end, you change. How do you think you've changed between when you started writing the book mm-hmm. and when you finished? When I started writing the book, I was still in a very raw place. I was really still reeling from the events. And the situation between with Eric and I was still very, very uncertain, and I didn't know. I didn't know if I wanted to be married. I didn't know, you know, how I felt about this other guy about D. I, you know, he, it was it was all so confusing. And in the process of writing the book, and 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 just that period of time, and and working it through, and and continuing to butcher while I was writing, and all that stuff, a couple of changes. I mean, I think first and foremost, my concept of what I needed to be able to be and who I needed to be in order to discover whether I wanted to stay married. And once I discovered that I did, how that marriage can work and how it had to change. Essential to that was just realizing that I am my own person. And, and you know, I'm not half of a marriage. I am a person, one of two people in a marriage. And also, I, I, I think that a lot of the pressure I was feeling at the time, and a lot of the reason I was in a very dark place when I began the book, was that I had this perception of relationships as being very defined and needing resolution and needing to be this sort of boxed, clear thing, and that I had broken it. I'd broken this thing that was supposed to be the way it was. Even with my relationship with Dee, this was the definition, and I had screwed something up somehow and had broken it. And I have had a complete new understanding of what a relationship really is and that it, it is it is something that moves and grows and changes all the time. And if you're expecting resolution and you're expecting to tie it all up with a pretty bow, it's just going to come apart again because you're not going to be the same person in five years and 10 years and 20 years. So I think that that was a really profound change of perspective for me and is was what made it possible for Eric and I to rework our marriage and, and, and put it back on track. You were working on the book just taking notes during those six months at Fleischer's or did you actually put that aside and start after that? I took some notes. I, you know, wrote my musings. I, I you know, I, there was nothing very organized in terms of the writing until I had I had to get it done and then, you know, ex- have that experience and then. That means that when you were actually writing the book, describing the time at Fleischer's and your obsession with the character you mm-hmm. call D, that person, 
you were past that at that mm-hmm. particular time. You mm-hmm. were going back into those old memories. Yeah, yeah. And it was hard. Um, but I needed that distance. It's interesting. I actually wrote a piece much earlier on uh, that I sort of regret having written um, because I did write it right in the middle of the thing. You know, it was it was a couple months after Dee and I had broken up and I was just like an open wound. And someone came up to me and said, hi, do you want to write a piece for this anthology about women and sexual experience? I'm like, sure, great. I know exactly what I'll write about. And I wrote this thing that's just, it's, it's not a terrible piece, but you go back and you read it and, and you can just see I didn't have any perspective at all. So while it was difficult to revisit that stuff, in a way it was great to revisit that stuff from being outside of it and and be able to see the experience was not quite what I had thought it was at the time. You also had an experience in Tanzania, a near rape in Tanzania. I just wonder how much that kind of plays into your entire idea of sexuality and hmm. being a single woman. Hmm. That was a, that, you know, obviously a really terrifying moment for me. And in thinking about it, going back and thinking about it and how I acted and how I reacted to that threat and, you know, and that vulnerability I felt as a person out there alone in the world who was seen by this person as his right or his, you know, something that he could just take. A couple things that came out of it. First of all, one of the things about being married, again, since you're 18, I, I, never, I was never out in the world as a single sexual person and with all the peril that that entails. Uh, so it was, I think, a good experience for me to have. But it also, I thought it was really interesting to me how I, my first reaction was that this is something I deserve, this is something I called upon myself, this is something I almost should allow it to happen. And when I think back on that, and I've been in therapy for a good few years now, and I've talked about this stuff, there's something broken in that concept that 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 sex should be something that I owe people or that you know something I have to give rather than want to give to the people I want to give it to. He wasn't the most terrifying guy on the face of the planet or anything. I mean, it was never honestly as scary as it was. It was it was. Well, it comes across as scary because yeah. you don't. There's a point. Yeah. You don't know what he's going to do, and he's right. bigger than you are. He, he was bigger than me. That's yeah. true. Julie Powell, now that you've gotten your second book, and you've also gotten an honorary degree from Cordon <laughs> yes, Bleu. Yes, which is ridiculous, uh, but thank you. <laughs> on, uh, on, on your website, you're talking about wanting to write fiction. Mm-hmm. Is that where you're going with this? I Yeah, I, I, I would like to get back into fiction. That was what, what I wanted to be when I was younger, a novelist, and uh, my degree in college was in fiction uh, and theater, but fiction. And yeah, for a lot of reasons, I'd like to get into fiction. I think that it's a, it's a muscle I haven't, you know, flexed for a while. And I'm, and I'm, it terrifies me, which is always a good sign. And yeah, you know, how many memoirs do you really need to write, honestly? You've been listening to an interview with the late Julie Powell, who died on October 26, 2022, at the age of 49, recorded on December 16, 2009, while she was on tour for her second book, Cleaving. Her first book, Julie and Julia, became a bestseller and was turned into a film with Meryl Streep and Amy Adams. While Julie Powell continued to blog and write, Cleaving would be her last book. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.